Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. Today my guest is Matthew Pauly, and we will be discussing his uh, book, Breaking the Tongue, Language, Education and Power in Soviet Ukraine, 1923-1934. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. So I know that you're currently in Odessa, Ukraine, on a Fulbright program. And would you tell us a little bit about your current research projects? What brought you to Ukraine? Uh, so my current project is called uh, City of Children. Um, it's an investigation of the history of children's welfare in Odessa. Uh, I'm trying to do it over the 1917 divide. Uh, so uh, investigating the pre-revolutionary history of charity towards children um, and then the Soviet uh, concern for the large number of orphan and semi-orphan children uh, that Soviet authorities confronted after after the Civil War. Um, the Soviet records are rich mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and vast and uh, so I find myself in this, I'm here, here for one semester only. Mm-hmm. I find myself uh, concentrating very much on the, the Soviet period, this period I know well from having written this this book that we're going to discuss uh, too. Uh, so the 1920s and, and 1930s is a period I feel I'm expert in, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been doing a great amount of work on that. But, uh, uh, but I started the project actually in St. Petersburg, Russia, working in the Russian Historical Archive there and looking at particular philanthropic institutions uh, that were uh, setting up children's shelters in Odessa at the turn of the century. So currently you're in Odessa, and as a Fulbright scholar, you're affiliated with one of uh, the institutions in Odessa. But what's your map of traveling across Ukraine? So I, I'm really in Odessa. I'm trying to stay as much as I can in Odessa. I find uh, that uh, you know, I have so much to go through in the Oblast archive here um, that uh, although I had initial ambitions of, of going uh, going around Ukraine a bit more, you know, as a historian, as historians were sort of tethered to uh, to the archives, and and that's how I feel in Odessa, and they're quite hospitable to me here, too, so I'm, I'm able to work relatively efficiently. The building itself is, is not in great shape, um, but the, the, the administrators of the archive are wonderfully open and, and helpful people, so I've uh, I found uh, that, uh, that there's reason to stay and, and work here uh, a fair amount. Um, I came... I flew into Odessa and I've been up and back and forth to Kiev. I'll go up again to give a talk to the Institute of History under the Academy of Sciences um, in a couple of weeks now to discuss this book 
as well. The latter part of the book, I mm -hmm. was invited to go up and give that talk. But uh, beyond that trip to Kiev, and then my family is going to come uh, later, and uh, mm -hmm. my little girls see uh, see Ukraine for the first time, and we'll go back up mm -hmm. to Kiev and see the Viv as well. But beyond that, here I sit and. In Odessa, trying to, I'm working in multiple places. I'm working in the main oblast archive, and then there's also a branch archive that looks, uh, that holds uh, records specifically for the Communist Party, the former Communist Party archive, um, and uh, work a lot in uh, the main scientific library here uh, as well. And I'm trying to see if I can get into the, um, the SBAU archive to look at some files of um of educators who ran these children's buildings and uh children's villages uh in the 1920s and 30s and were subsequently arrested um so we'll see if that mm -hmm. if that comes to fruition that's one of my ambitions as well so there's plenty to keep me busy here <laughs> for uh for semesters what i've found so, before we discuss your um, book, Breaking the Tongue, uh, would you tell us a little bit about your interest in Ukraine? Why Ukraine and how did this interest originate? I know that you mentioned uh, before we started the uh, interview that uh, you went to Ukraine as a high school student. I did. I did shortly after Chernobyl. So, mm. I think it must have been 87 or 88 the first time I mean, it was a grand tour of the the soviet union i had a high school t teacher that was fascinated with the soviet union and mm -hmm. it was a rare opportunity to, to come and see the soviet union so we traveled traveled around but uh kiev was one of our stops and i was immediately impressed by kiev and and, <laughs> and the greenness that is mm -hmm. kiev and, and was even more so at that time it's just filled with parks and and it was relatively quiet uh, compared to, to Moscow. So I don't know. I found uh, Kiev comforting in a way after the hustle and bustle mm -hmm. of uh, of Moscow. Um, but you know, it's always a, it's never an easy question. I have a long range uh, explanation. I, I lived as a child in. Uh, West Berlin and Vienna, both mm -hmm. cities close to the Eastern Bloc, and I traveled a lot in the Eastern Bloc with my family and uh, was perplexed as a, as a child what, why there was this difference between uh, uh, countries on uh, either side of a border. Um, and then I suppose Ukraine, uh, the, the, the humorous answer I like to give is that when I was in high school, I had a uh, test that was administered by my high school teacher, and one of the questions that was asked was what countries emerged um, from the First World War uh, with their independence, and I, I answered Ukraine, and he marked it as, as wrong, and so I had to go back and prove that indeed for a short period of time, Ukraine was was indeed uh, independent and kept on fighting for its independence between 1917 to 1921. So, so Ukraine uh, remained, uh, I mean, it was a, a fascination for me then, and I guess the, the bug stuck with me um, my first year of graduate school and a seminar in Ukrainian history and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in, in graduate school and, and this, uh, this seminar was eye-opening to me uh, in terms of uh, really uh, 
giving me an opportunity to to engage the complexity of Ukrainian history in a much deeper way than I ever had uh, as an informal visitor to to Ukraine and and through my sort of broad exposure as an undergraduate, I don't think I really understood <laughs> what a complicated place Ukraine was, and, and you know, uh, it's uh, it's complexity. I think. Um, uh, incites the curious, uh, and uh, and uh, I pursued that. From I um, eventually ended up studying the Ukrainian language after taking turns in Russian and and Polish. Uh, they didn't uh, uh, teach Ukrainian at my graduate institution at the time, so mm-hmm. I went to Lviv and studied Ukrainian there, and then Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, and um, became fascinated with the Ukrainian language. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, and, and, and beauty of this language. Uh, um, so, well, so uh, that's a that's a multivalent uh, <laughs> response to the question. Right. But, well, thank yeah. you so much. That sounds fascinating. And uh, is the Ukrainian um, history a part of your teaching currently? Uh, it is. I mean, I fold Ukraine, uh, obviously, into almost everything I, I, I teach if I get the chance. I have taught seminars, undergraduate seminars, uh, on Ukrainian history. Um, and then uh, uh, I teach our survey course on the history of the Second World War. And there's a huge emphasis on uh, the war on the Eastern Front and most specifically on Ukraine. So my students who know nothing, uh, uh, really uh, very few would know anything about Ukraine's uh, participation in the war and and, um, and only slightly know, slightly more know anything about the Soviet Union's uh, broader participation in the war. So, so uh, I bring it in where I can uh, into larger classes to students who don't particularly enroll in the courses in the course to take a course in Eastern European history. They're going to get get it through me, and and most are genuinely pleased um, to learn something something new. And then I teach uh, history of Imperial Russia, and I teach um, that's a survey course that so we do a fair amount uh, on Ukraine there and. I also teach an upper-level senior seminar on nationalism and national identity in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, and obviously we talk about Ukraine in that context too. And then I've been trying to do more, as this current project shows, uh, with history of childhood. Uh, so I teach a number of seminars related to the history of childhood, and uh, we do um, a fair amount, I'd say, of history of childhood in the, in the Soviet Union generally in that class. So um, moving towards your publication, uh, Breaking the Tongue is a very impressive investigation that encompasses educational, political, social, and cultural phenomena uh, that were shaping the formative years, um, not only of Soviet Ukraine, but the Soviet Union as well. And um, in your research, you carefully document what was going on in Ukraine in terms of language policy during the 1920s and 1930s. I would really like to start the discussion of this publication with the one of the concluding parts of this publication. Um, that was Chapter 14, Biographical and Informational Sketches. And um, uh, to say the least, it 
the this part resonates with with terror. I don't want to sound over dramatic, but um, the information, <laughs> but the information that you provide there is really terrifying. And here you compile the um, biographical sketches of those who, this way or another, were somehow involved into this very controversial process of language policy that was introduced in Ukraine in the 1920s. So, do you mind if I just? Um, um, reads just uh, uh, maybe just a few uh, uh, paragraphs from this part. Sure. Please. Vasil Doha was a leading pedagogue and researcher at the Scientific Pedagogical Academy of Sciences. He was arrested as an alleged member of the fictional uh, Union for the Liberation of Ukraine and sentenced to a three-year imprisonment outside the borders of Ukraine. His final fate is unknown. Volodymyr Durdukivsky was the director of the Shevchenko First Ukrainian Gymnasium in Kiev. He was arrested in 1929 as an alleged member of the fictional Union for the Liberation of Ukraine and sentenced to an eight-year imprisonment, was released early, but then was subsequently re-arrested and executed in 1937. Um, Mykola Hrylevy was a leading Soviet-Ukrainian writer and publicist. Um, in 1933, he committed suicide during the midst of a new campaign of political and cultural repression in Ukraine. Volodymyr Zatonsky was a Communist Party figure. Uh, he, uh, re- uh, he was arrested in 1937 and later executed. And I just mentioned just a couple of those sketches that you included in this part. So what do we, what do we, sure. what, how do we make sense out of all these stories? Um, would you introduce us to what was going on in Soviet Ukraine during the period that you co- covered in your, in your uh, research? Sure. So, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you read those because out, uh, I mean, they do in short form explain the conclusion, I suppose, to to my story. Um, there, there are many ways, an addendum to the book, right, designed to aid the reader uh, in, in making sense of what I uh, describe. So, um, so they're there, uh, Intentionally, I put them there intentionally to, to, to offer reference for the n- numerous names that readers confront as they, they read through the book. I think the larger story, I mean, I'm not, uh, I would not say my specialty is uh, writing history of repression and terror, right? The, the, there's a certain cadre of historians, and that's all they do. Um, but it is a necessary uh, and definitely definitive part of the story that I tell, which is about a program that the Communist Party certainly supported, and I believe, uh, I believe sincerely uh, for a time, uh, to promote uh, national culture and national languages. But they didn't have the political cadres uh that um that were they didn't have large numbers of committed ukrainian speakers in the communist party who could um, promote the ukrainian language throughout the republic and so they're they in many ways were forced to rely on non-party educators and members of the national intelligentsia some of whom had been quite opposed to Bolshevik rule, although 
uh, by and large, the vast majority of them were decidedly left um, and shared some of the aspirations of, uh, of the communist uh, state in, in broad form. So um, uh, the argument that I make in the, in, in the book is that the Communist Party relied on these uh, educators out of necessity, um, although many of these educators uh, shared their own private suspicions about uh, communist power or the role of the party in Soviet Ukrainian um, life, they were nevertheless committed to this particular program and didn't see what the uh, what the future for this program would hold, right? So they worked, I believe, quite genuinely and energetically to fulfill a program that uh, that they were asked to carry out because they believed in it. Uh, they had the skills uh, to uh, to accomplish a transformation of linguistic culture um, in Ukraine. Um, but the, the party's trust in, in these non-party educators and intellectuals was uh, limited. Um, and uh, I try to, I mean, it's a highly detailed book, right, mm -hmm. where I try to um, explain some of the, the divisions that occur. Um, uh, but I guess I would say uh, the Communist Party was only willing to let them go so far, right? And they didn't um, fully uh, uh, allow these teachers and educators to to um, pursue each of their uh, their ambitions. Um, and there came a point in time where the party begins to worry about what is actually being taught, specifically in the classroom, right? So the book focuses on primary schools, such as elementary schools, and what is going on in these elementary schools. Um, and one of the arguments that I make in the book is that although this was certainly an important uh, policy, that is the transformation of linguistic culture and the promotion of non-Russian languages and non-Russian cultures, uh, it was very much decentralized. So in spite of its political importance, the decisions about how this policy was going to be implemented were given to um, local education officials and then below them teachers and members of the Ukrainian um, national intelligence. Yeah. So, uh, so, <laughs> so the, the program is handed over um, in, in many ways in, in a daily sort of sense to people that didn't enjoy the full trust of the party and, and um, because of its uh, decentralized nature, um, the party wasn't entirely sure what was happening um, in the classroom or what was, what was resulting from this decision to push Ukrainian uh, culture specifically uh, in, in the Soviet Ukrainian Republic. So the official term for this process, just to clarify for our audience, is uh, Ukrainization. Yes. And, uh, well, my... Ukrainization. 
Uh, right. <laughs> and so my uh, question um, is about the origins of this process, because on the one hand, it may sound to, to some quite paradoxical that we speaking about Ukraine as a country, either as a as a part of the USSR or just as a country itself. But still, we're talking about the introduction of the Ukrainian language into this country. So how, why why was it necessary to introduce the Ukrainian language in Ukraine? Right, well, they're not really introducing the Ukrainian language, right? The Ukrainian language uh, obviously uh, exists, but it's being spoken primarily by... Um, uh, those uh, Ukrainians who live live outside the main cities uh, of Ukraine, not exclusively, but by and large, that's where the Ukrainian-speaking population um, is. Uh, and so uh, Ukrainian language is fully, in my view, uh, certainly now and, and even more so, one could argue, then uh, in the vast majority of the countryside, uh, a, a, a vivid and uh, and widely used language. Um, the challenge comes, I, I think, from a number of um, for a number of reasons. Right. So the first one and the most elementary of them is that there is Ukrainian national revolution. There are successive attempts by um, Ukrainian leaders to create an independent Ukrainian state. It's a highly complicated history, the one that I think even specialists like myself get confused by, by the number of iterations of Ukrainian state and, and, and its fortunes. But uh, nevertheless, it, it wasn't easy um, for, uh, for the Red Army um, uh, and um, and for pro-Soviet Ukrainians or pro-Soviet um, residents of the provinces uh, of the Russian Empire that came to constitute Ukraine, it wasn't easy for them to secure uh, a firm political hold on Ukraine. So, so in one at one level, this policy of Ukrainianization is a is a gesture towards the, a reality that the the Bolsheviks and the Communist Party face, that is, that there is um, there is a, a, an, an increasing tendency to identify oneself in national in national terms. Uh, the national movement wasn't strong enough to secure uh, Ukrainian independence permanently, but it's strong enough to to, uh, to resist or at least impede repeated attempts to to um, to bring Ukraine into what eventually becomes the Soviet Union. Um, but the larger, so that's the sort of the, I suppose, most elementary explanation. The larger concern is really um, a recognition that the country is nearly 80% ethnically Ukrainian. By and large, this population speaks Ukrainian, and if they're going to um, uh, create a modern and industrialized portion uh, of the Soviet Union in Ukraine or space uh, uh, of the Soviet Union in Ukraine, then they need to um, make sure that 
the labor force that is coming into the cities um, uh, is able to uh, adapt and, and readily operate within the environment of those cities. So it calls for most uh, pointedly a transformation of the urban space, the creation of a, a Ukrainian speaking urban urban space to to uh, in a way facilitate the in migration of Ukrainian peasants into the city were viewed as a necessary part of a labor force that is only going to grow over the course of time in industrial spaces. So, so it's about uh, transformation of the urban space is also about sort of the creation of a new modern uh, Ukrainian national culture that is not rooted in the countryside. Uh, so, uh, uh, so everything has to change within the cities and Ukrainianness or Ukrainian culture has to become associated really with um, with the certainly the modernizing and industrializing aspirations of the Communist Party. So what contributed to this division between the uh, Ukrainian-speaking countryside and Russian-speaking city? What contributed to this uh, uh, difference uh, in terms of um, uh, population? Who would choose this or that, quest, uh, this, uh, this or that language? Um, is this correct to assume that um, this uh, Ukrainization policy was a part of what was going on under the Russian Empire, all the decrees and all the regulations which were introduced by the Russian Empire to ban the Ukrainian language? We know the AMS decree. Mm-hmm. 1876, and then again, there was some kind of uh, uh, going back to that policy uh, by Stalipin's endeavors, <laughs> again, to ban U- the Ukrainian language and to promote the Russian language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, so you're describing uh, sort of anti-Ukrainian laws that were enacted by mm-hmm. successive czars and their servitors which ensured that the language of culture, the language of uh, the published word, by and large, uh, and for that matter, the language of the city and language of education uh, was Russian, right? There, there was, um, there, generally speaking, there wasn't, there was, very little possibility of gaining an education within the Russian Empire in the Ukrainian language, and certainly um, uh, you're not going to get it if you came came to the city seeking it. So, yeah, there are all sorts of uh, restrictions on the the use of Ukrainian. Um, the view, of course, for Russian imperial authorities, and this had um, broad sympathy in cities within Ukraine was that that Ukrainian wasn't a real language, that it was a dialect of the Russian language, um, uh, and that if one was going to become, uh, if that was your aspiration as a recent migrant to the city in, uh, in Imperial Russia in the 19th century, for example, you're going to become cultured, then you're going to switch over to the use to the use of uh, 
to the use of Russian. So, you know, um, uh, this book is in part um, also, I suppose, uh, an examination of um, what I feel. This isn't universally true for um, leaders of the Communist Party, but there was um, a logic among some that uh, that they were writing a historical wrong, right? Um, and uh, it's uh, complicated, I think, to figure out um, truly what the intentions of the party leadership uh, as a whole were. Um, but in general, I try to make the argument that, um, uh, which isn't novel, it's been made by historians before me that um, there, even uh, among the leadership in Moscow, there was a committed uh, a, a attempt to support Ukrainianization and to support non-Russian um, cultures uh, generally. And partly it's this notion that they were doing better than Russian imperial authorities had done before them, right? That, the Ukrainian nation had suffered under Russian imperial uh, authority, and they were correcting that past, but with a specific agenda in mind. That is, again, to make use of the fodder at their disposal. That is uh, a labor force or potential labor force that spoke overwhelmingly Ukrainian in the uh, in the borders of the uh, Soviet Ukrainian Republic. Yeah, like uh, you mentioned, it's quite uh, it's quite uh, unclear what were the intentions, <laughs> real intentions, uh, for this uh, process. For example, the showcase intent was probably to promote the Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. However, when it comes down to what groups were subjected to this uh, process, this clarity and this certainty becomes somewhat blurry. And uh, you mentioned the change in the um, the process overall when uh, Stalin was um, gaining power in the Soviet Union and uh, the uh, overall tone uh, toward the Ukrainization uh, changed because uh, I guess um, the question shifted to whether the Russian community um, could be subjected to the Ukrainization. Is that, is that somehow... Um, right, the rhetoric moves to, so, and you say at the outset, right, Ukrainianization never technically ends, but in my view, linguistic Ukrainianization is robbed of any bigger, really, at an earlier date than I think other historians have talked about. So I just focus in particular on this trial of, uh, of, of, uh, of members of the Ukrainian intellectual elite, including leading pedagogues. And um, and uh, and people like Jodorowsky, uh, very well-known uh, primary school teachers, right in what was called the Union uh, for Liberation of Ukraine, Spilka Vizvonya Ukraine. So I, I think there, I think things change fundamentally there because these all the people that are being placed on trial are committed Ukrainizers. Um, and uh, and people, teachers, uh, particularly teachers sitting in provincial cities or towns who read of these uh, trials or of this particular trial and of this particular group that um, uh, didn't really exist but was created to 
um, send a particular um, message that is um, be careful just um, how far you push Ukrainianization or remember that Ukrainianization is always under the party's uh, leadership and and decisions don't don't rest with you. So in my view, um, uh, this particular trial um, had a pedagogical intent of its own and and teachers took teachers who uh, some of whom certainly in provincial cities um, who were resisting the transfer to Ukrainian language instruction um, decided that it wasn't worth doing. The penalty for being too energetic in one's embrace of Ukrainianization and not knowing what the limits were uh, mm-hmm. was high, right? The penalty for embracing it too zealously was high, whereas the penalty for not doing anything at all really wasn't significant. So there are all sorts of uh, exhortations for teachers to uh, use to first learn Ukrainian if they didn't know it already and they were teaching in Ukrainian school um, uh, and to improve their knowledge and uh, and and teachers are told to do this they're they're given uh, examinations uh, on occasion of their Ukrainian language knowledge and also their knowledge of what was broadly called Ukrainian studies, so which meant not a concern for you know Ukrainian folklore culture, but knowledge of new progressive and modern uh, Ukrainian Soviet literature that demonstrate all these things, but they could repeatedly fail the exam without considerable um, consequence. Um, and they also often post were able to postpone uh, these sorts of exams. So here in Odessa, where I am now, uh, I wrote a chapter in the book on Odessa because I, you know, I found mm-hmm. Odessa a fascinating place uh, in the central archives. There was a lot of uh, information about resistance to Ukrainianization in southern Ukraine centered around Odessa. And for the first time, I, I found an Odessa um, uh examples of these tests that teachers had to take to demonstrate the Ukrainian language knowledge. And um, the tests, I assume, were supposed to be marked on the basis of grammar and things along these lines, but they also had a political intent. So the number of the questions that they were asked were about their understanding of the political meaning of Ukrainianization. Did they understand uh, as teachers in Soviet schools why Ukrainianization was necessary and, you know, it's hard to judge as a historian, but those those teachers who conceded that it was foolish to teach in Russian to Ukrainian-speaking children uh, often got high marks on their, uh, their samples of written, written work. So, and now, um, uh, teachers recognized that that uh, that after 1930, even if the policy continued, there's no point in pushing it too hard that uh, they could risk um, definite penalty by doing so, right? Um, They could be dismissed, they could be arrested, Mm -hmm. and uh, they could ultimately be exiled or executed for, for alleged participation in Ukrainian nationalist activity. 
So, so the the Communist Party was worried that um, that Ukrainianization was leading to a tick up in um, in an embrace of separatist Ukrainian nationalism in the schools. Yeah, I I found that aspect about nationalism is quite uh, interesting in this uh, research. I believe this a concept of nationalism would be different in the context of the Ukraine of the 1920s and 1930s uh, if compared to the context of, uh, for example, 2010 or 2016. Um, could, you, uh, could you elaborate a little bit on this concept of nationalism under the Ukrainization or under the Soviet Union? So what did nationalism mean to right. the Soviets or what? I mean, uh, I, I guess I'd say this, that national identification is good, right? That, that the Soviets generally believed that um, that you had to pass through a stage of, of uh, national identification before uh, and and that one had to become uh, an informed modern citizen and the only way to do that was through a language that you understood, which also called for an embrace of the national language, right? Mm -hmm. But what you couldn't do was uh, argue, for example, the Ukrainian was only for ethnic Ukrainians, which would be, I suppose, the most... Uh, uh, dark, the darkest thing of all, but uh, or, or arguing that uh, that Ukraine could um, pursue a, a somewhat independent path towards socialism, independent from Moscow's leadership, and there were certainly voices um, along these lines, not arguing for a break necessarily from the Soviet Union, but arguing there are distinctive things in Ukraine, uh, and distinctive challenges that the people as a whole in Ukraine, um, whether they were ethnically Ukrainian or not faced, um, that, that, uh, that called for some allowance of a decentralization of political power, right. And, um, and some amount of, um, decision making to to be invested in the republican uh leadership of soviet ukraine and uh, of the uh ukrainian branch of the communist party so so uh but i mean there's there there's the constant ghost i'd say in this story that i tell uh of 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 the ukrainian national or the ukrainian revolution right so the people that are ultimately put on trial for this Union for Liberation of Ukraine. Um, many of them had some uh, affiliation with the Ukrainian People's Republic. It's one of these short-lived um, uh, Ukrainian independent states. Um, and they're accused of commemorating one of the leaders of that uh, state, Simon Pedlora, um, accused of uh, collecting uh, money uh, uh, in his uh, honor after his his death. To, um, so and and uh, and the the term that is often applied uh, to those that the Soviet uh, Communist Party accused of Ukrainian nationalism is uh, is Petlorist, right? So mm -hmm. it's a direct invocation 
of this very contested time between 1917 to 1921. So, so there's a, they have something tangible that they can point to uh, uh, in terms of their understanding of what nationalism is. The nat- nationalism is that thing that fought against us um, in the in the Civil War, and I think there is a perpetual anxiety of that somehow reanimating itself. Now, I, I should say that I, I, I found, you know, if you, you read some of the private and some of these diaries mm, right. have been published of those um, uh, who were uh, accused of being members of the U- Union for Liberation of Ukraine, um, the diary of its alleged uh, leader, Sergei Efremov, uh, has been uh, published, and it reveals certainly disenchantment with Soviet power, but it doesn't reveal anything along the lines of a nationalist conspiracy um, designed to break away uh, Ukraine from the Soviet Union. So, and there's a tension, I, I, and I think the the in many ways the, it's a contradictory policy that. Uh, is difficult to describe in, in a two-minute answer, right? But uh, it takes a <laughs> 400-page some uh, book to, to describe about, um, you know, uh, this this intention to create a Ukrainian-inflected modern industrial space, but uh, an unwillingness to um, trust others to... Um, to build that state in the party's name, even though the party was forced by circumstance to rely on such individuals for a time. So, so um, the, what the limits of Ukrainian national culture are in the 20s, I'd say, are uh, not known involved in the policy and I guess uh, I'd certainly like to emphasize if I could in, in my comments now that I mean I, I really if you if you take the, the time as I do did to read through all these files it's it's difficult to come away with the conclusion that Ukrainianization was somehow false right mm-hmm. or uh, um, uh, um, uh, artificial Mm-hmm. Um, because <laughs> if it was, uh, immense amount of people spent an immense amount of time dedicating themselves to this effort and, and for a time they're given the space to do so. So, um, was this process successful in your opinion? Was it successful? Yes. Um, so I, I would say... I suppose it depends on what we define success uh, <laughs> as being. Obviously, it wasn't successful by the ambitions of the those who were most committed to Ukrainianization, right? Everyone who is intimately tied with the program of, of uh, or at least most who are intimately tied with the program of Ukrainianization meet a pretty bad uh, fate, right? Um, including, I mean, one of the, as a graduate student, how I got involved in this project was really as a student of nationalism, not as a student of education, but I became aware, right, that all the all the commissars of education, or many of them, had become um, uh, victims of political repression uh, as a result of their involvement, partly, uh, in Ukrainianization. So for these people, obviously, Ukrainianization isn't successful. 
right? Um, uh, and I, I suppose, I guess, I, I have a, uh, uh, as I understand Ukrainianization as, and what it came to be over the course of the 1920s, um, uh, I don't think one can argue that it's fulfilled in any measure of the word. That being said, certainly uh, there's a school of historians that argue, uh, and I don't entirely disagree with them, that uh, that that in the Soviets did aid in the creation of something called Ukrainian national identity and Ukrainian national space, um, and uh, I, I still believe that uh, if we're talking uh, about the year 1991, certainly that's true, right? Um, uh, when the uh, over 80% of the population votes for Ukrainian uh, independence and, and people recognize what the territory of Ukraine is, now that is obviously in dispute. Um, uh, as a result of the war that is going on in southeastern Ukraine. But um, all the pre-conflict, pre-2014 data suggests that, uh, that uh, there, there's a, there was a firm commitment to the idea of Ukrainian territorial integrity, even in, uh, in, in southeastern Ukraine. So um, it's gotten exceedingly conflict, uh, complicated, I think, um, um, it's not to deny that there isn't um, genuine, genuine separatist um, sentiment among some of the people fighting in southeastern Ukraine, but I think it's taken external factors to really question the notion of what is, what is territorial, what is the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and and partly, you know, I mean, uh, that's I suppose related to this study. I mean, I. I, I chose to dedicate a chapter to Odessa uh, because Odessa's, uh, I argue that, you know, it's a, it's a multi-ethnic space in which um, Ukrainianness came to be accepted by a portion of the population. And I have examples of, of, of Russian-speaking parents petitioning for um, the local education authorities to create Ukrainian schools because they see knowledge of Ukrainian as uh, a quality or as a um, skill that they believe their, their children need to have in the future uh, Soviet Ukraine. So that's, to me, also an expression of where potentially this policy um, could have gone. But I also talk uh, in the last chapter for a amount about the Donbass, um, and that is the area where the, the war is going on right now in southeastern Ukraine. Um, and um, and you know it's uh, it's not an easy road for the Ukrainianizers there uh, as well. But there is a commitment on the part of those invested in the policy of Ukrainianization to also um, promote Ukrainian uh, language uh, in in industrial. Uh, and urban spaces in southeastern Ukraine. The argument's easier to make, obviously, when you go outside the cities again, but they're committed to trying to transform those spaces in southeastern Ukraine. So, so I don't know. Uh, I'd say uh, it's not successful in terms of uh, the understanding of the original architects of the policy and those uh, entrusted with implementing the policy. Um, but they're... The, the fact that 
that uh, that Ukrainian language schools never entirely disappear, um, uh, and uh, Ukrainian national culture, even though it's marginalized to specific spaces, um, uh, Ukrainian national culture continues to be supported at some level by the state. Um, I suppose is in a way a legacy of this policy, but uh, I, I think I'm decidedly pessimistic by the end of the, the book. And, and <laughs> in my tone, I mean, uh, the, uh, the the future might have, uh, might have been different. Well, just one more question about your research. You also uh, extensively comment on the children's involvement into this uh, policy. Could you tell us just a little bit about that aspect of this, um, of this process? Yeah, so, I mean, children's perspective is always difficult to get at. Mm -hmm. I struggle as a sort of burgeoning historian of childhood to talk about the children's perspective. In many ways, we see the, uh, their role through the lens of uh, through the lens of institutions such as schools. So, um, so uh, I, I focus on children quite obviously because they they're they are at the center of the of my study in terms of. Um, of being the objects that are begging for transformation, mm -hmm. right? Um, so they're they're in these Ukrainian language schools as they're converting to full scale Ukrainian language uh, in instruction, um, and I, I think my concern for children um, happens. Uh, well, I mean. It's easy to explain for anybody writing a history of uh, of schools, uh, but um, uh, I try to make the argument that um, that there is such a penalty against a notion of um, forced Ukrainianization, right? Um, so um, there's a stricture against this. Certainly, you couldn't force ethnic Russians to speak Ukrainian. One of the aims of or one of the one of the defining aspects of Ukrainization was a sort of sorting out of people by national affiliation. So I think Ukrainians were supposed to go to Ukrainian schools, ethnic Russians were supposed to go to Russian schools. It was never that perfect, but that's and uh, but that's how it was imagined. National minorities were supposed to go to uh, schools that taught in their language what what the the state thought should be their language of um, instruction. Um, but it became decidedly um, uh, tricky when one was dealing with what to do with people who were ethnically Ukrainian but were members of the industrial working class or the proletariat, right, and who spoke Russian and they, they'd been there for a generation and they, they, uh, they lived in a Russian-speaking city in Ukraine for some time um, uh, or their family before them and they spoke Russian. So what to do about them if they are identified as ethnically Ukrainian um, but uh, speakers of Russian, and I make the argument in the book that that one of the ways to go around the prohibition against forced Ukrainization was to uh, was to Ukrainize the that is to um, reorient the language, uh, the spoken language of their children um, in the schools. So that was one way to uh, to I mean. 
I suppose the, the party could never forfeit the notion that the industrial labor class or the proletariat had to speak Ukrainian. If it, if it didn't, then what was the whole point of the policy? Um, laborers had, uh, it was imagined, in the, in the end result of Ukrainianization would be in industrial areas and urban areas, people would be speaking Ukrainian. And uh, Mikola Skripnik, uh, the last commissar of education during my period of study, um, uh, 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 comes up with this tactic of, um, of uh, essentially doing a run around the parents. And um, if you identified uh, as ethnically Ukrainian, you were supposed to overcome the state's presumption um, that your child attend a Ukrainian school. So so uh, there's a focus on children in that respect. And then a larger argument is that, um, you know, children uh, become the objects of political contestation um, uh, for the state, for the Communist Party, and for Ukrainizers, right? So there is a concern about what actual lessons children are receiving in Ukrainian language schools. Um, the party doesn't entirely know, and they're, they're worried. Um, there's a hope that um, the children can right the wrongs of the Ukrainian national intelligentsia, right? Um, uh, but there's also a suspicion that they've become victims of their influence. And I think this occasions the script, uh, as I put it, of, of repression in Ukraine. So the people um, that are targeted in this Union uh, uh, for Liberation of Ukraine trial are people who had direct responsibility over the cultivation and education of children. And I think for that reason, they become highly vulnerable uh, to uh, to the suspicions of the Communist Party, and most certainly to the suspicions of the state security service or the KPAU. Well, could we say that this kind of um, policy, either Ukrainization or Russification, can be quite traumatizing for children in particular? Because uh, on the one hand, they are exposed to different languages. However, on the other hand, um, there are some other consequences, cultural and even mental, that are not that uh, positive. Um, so w- would you comment on the uh, traumatizing, probably, facts of this kind of enforcement? Yeah, I mean, that's difficult to uncover from the historical record, mm-hmm. right? It's certainly from the archival record, mm-hmm. what sort of... I think it's certainly valid and legitimate question. What 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 are you supposed to think if you're going from uh, if you live in a city like Odessa and you live in a Russian-speaking home, but you're ethnically Ukrainian now? You're being told to go to Ukrainian school where right. Ukrainian is the predominant language of instruction, and your family doesn't speak that language at home and may, in fact, not want you to go to such a school, but the state is placing uh, immense pressure for you to attend such a school. So I, I don't know, uh, I can't give you a neat answer from the perspective of the child. All I can tell you is what teachers um, uh, are recorded to have said, uh, according to educational inspectors. And I mean, teachers resisted to this as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and some complain that this is causing confusion in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Children don't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but there also is evidence that children, you know, um, are, uh, adjust relatively, relatively quickly uh, if, 
given the if given the time, I suppose, and also the commitment and energy of teachers who are willing to do this. I mean, but but it all it is uh, it also is. I mean, that one of the other streams of the book that I, I talk a lot about sort of the Ukrainianization element, uh, and I've been asked to speak about it a fair amount here in Ukraine as well too. But there's another strand to the book that is. Uh, this implementation of uh, quite progressive uh, pedagogy. One of the things I found when I started doing the research is quite obviously Ukrainianization isn't the only thing that people are concerned about when they're uh, concerned about schooling in this uh, period. Um, so teachers being asked to really radically transform the way they teach in the classroom, not teach according to textbooks, create their own modules for um, learning and to rely also on uh, initiative from children, and that also creates confusion as well. Some children conceivably quite uh, responded quite well. Of course, that was the aim of progressive pedagogy. But, but, um, but I, I think I think I say at several points in the book that teachers and children I think should be included as well. I didn't know what to make of what they were being asked to do. So. Um, so that doesn't um, that doesn't uh, preclude uh, the the reality uh, certainly that uh, that the archival record demonstrates that children did adjust and that some there there was an embrace by children teachers and parents of the transformation of the classroom to Ukrainian language instruction but but um, but certainly a portion of them had to be confused uh, and, uh, and, uh, and as to what went on in the minds of any individual child, that's, that's harder to say. So do you believe that those who advocated for the Ukrainization and for the progressive pedagogy uh, really had some vision of some final results of these processes? Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, or they just had some idea what could be done in order to, uh, in order to have this transition from the countryside to the urban um, life, and um, that's what they were doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think most certainly when one talks, so the two the two things are separate, but they're also connected. Progressive pedagogy and Ukrainian language instruction or national language uh, instruction. I think Ukrainianization is easier to say that they had, uh, that there was a committed group of both teachers and then above them um, inspectors of education, local sections of education, and then above them um, uh, uh, people defining the policy in the Republican capital of Kharkiv who had uh, certainly uh, uh, a dream of the realization of this idea. I don't think that's. I don't think I, that's much in dispute. What what was what was going to be realized by progressive pedagogy is is harder to say. I mean, it's um, uh, it's a it was uh, it was a stream of uh, of teaching that had been. Um, certainly advocated by those outside uh, the Soviet Union, advocated well before the creation of the Soviet Union, but it's still relatively new, and uh, 
the thought was that if you give teachers flexibility and you give students flexibility to learn what they want to learn in the, uh, I suppose, or more importantly, in the way they want to learn, then they're going to achieve a better um, uh, learning learning outcome. Um, you know, by and large, uh, I think uh, teachers were simply not trained to do this. Uh, they didn't have the education to mm -hmm. sort of create their own uh, lessons plans, and they're given very little direction and instruction. The whole thing is very, uh, as I make the claim repeated, the whole thing is very decentralized, and that applies to both the way children were taught and what language they were taught, right? So um, the, the creation of lesson plans is left open really to individual teachers, but then just above them, local education sections. And then, and just and, and the manner in which Ukrainianization was to be achieved is also very much left uh, on the local level. So one of the perplexing things that I found is, mm -hmm. you know, there's an absence of, of, train Ukrainian speakers in certain parts of Ukraine and certainly in urban spaces. And one would think that if the, uh, the center, in, in this sense, uh, the center, I mean, Kharkiv, the Republican capital, that is if the leaders of Soviet Ukraine were truly committed to carrying out the policy of Ukrainianization to the end, that there would be some coordination of the, um, teacher labor force, right? So that if there's a surplus of Ukrainian language teachers, say in the countryside around Kiev or Cherkasy, mm -hmm. uh, then that they, then it will be transferred uh, to places where Ukrainian language, skilled Ukrainian language teachers um, were needed. And that didn't happen. Local education sections in the Donbass area, for example, had to petition uh uh, individually for teachers to come and negotiate individually with teachers and some and sometimes with local education sections, but the whole thing's not coordinated um, from the the center. So I, while I don't question the intent to achieve Ukrainianization, there's a certain absurdity to the way in which uh, it was carried out. So, and, uh, well, your current project is uh, dealing with children as well, is that correct? Yes. And uh, it's about the Odessa region as well. Yeah, so I, I you know, as I said, I wrote this one chapter in the book on Odessa, and my first time in Odessa, I couldn't get in the Oblast archives, this was many years ago, Um uh, as I said, the Oblast Archive here is a wonderfully supportive place, but uh, but they don't have a lot of room mm -hmm. um, for for readers, and that remains true to this day. So, uh, although eventually uh, I was given permission to begin work there, and I've been uh, uh, very grateful uh, for the support I've received since. Um, the first time I was here, uh, I couldn't get in, so I contacted the university here, or the university that I'm now uh, affiliated with, um, and a, a member of the faculty took me on a sort of tour of Odessa with a insight into the history of education and took me out to the site of the first children's uh, uh, village um, uh, named after the common turn that was established in 1920. 
um, and uh, embraced sometimes in excess of 2,000 children, many of whom were orphaned, but not exclusively. There were children who had one surviving parent, and, and there were also cases of children attending um, uh, educational institutions in this children's village. It was a conglomeration of different uh, different children's shelters that were all brought together on the um, on the grounds of the former uh, cadet academy. Um, uh, and, uh, and you know, I visited this place. I had never heard of it before. It was new to me, and then became aware of just how amazingly famous this place was. And and they were practicing the sort of <laughs> same progressive pedagogy. Uh, but they had greater freedom, I suppose, to do it uh, because um, because there's the, by and large the absence of parental from the from their uh, perspective the absence of parental interference in terms of what was being attempted in these educational institutions, and it has some overlap with what I did before. I mean, children mm-hmm. were again divided by national nationality, so there were for these. Um, Children who lived permanently on the grounds of this children's village, um, they were housed in different buildings according to their nationality. So there was a Polish building, there was a Ukrainian building, and, and so on. Um, uh, anyhow, once I began starting working on this project, uh, I became aware of the immense amount of, um, of uh, institutions like this dedicated to the care of uh, children. Um, and I also became aware of a much deeper history that stretched back before before the revolution. So the problem of street children mm-hmm. um, has been a persistent one in Odessa, and, uh, and it was only exacerbated by the First World War and the, the Civil War and, and then the famine uh, that followed, uh, and uh, Soviet authorities had to confront that challenge. Um, what is amazing, I think, is that uh, that it has this larger history, right? And one of the things I'm trying to investigate is how much Soviet authorities are pro- pulling on a previous experience, a uh, late imperial experience of of caring for such vulnerable um, uh, children. Um, uh, but I, I think the other thing is that you know it becomes it becomes a point of pride. It, the problem never goes away, and that's what I've encountered in files that I'm examining right now. So it's not just the early 20s and persisting well into the 30s. And the same issues seem to come up again and again in terms of the absence of funding, buildings falling down, children not having, as you would expect, enough food, clothing, linens, and things like that. Um, but it's still, particularly this one children's village or children's city, Sometimes I, I, the Ukrainian word is mistechko, uh, Russian word korodok. Um, uh, 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 it becomes a um, a place of pedagogical innovation and uh, and pride for local Odessa educational authorities. So I just encountered last week documents from Inturis, right, the official Soviet. Um, uh, tourist agency that uh, they're, they're recounting the um, possibility of an Ameri- a visit by American and Spanish tourists to Odessa, and the one thing above all that they have to see is this children's village. Um, so, so uh, it's a project that's 
that runs parallel to my previous previous work on the history of schooling in Ukraine, but one that you know one never escapes. Uh, I think when one works in this area, the question of national identity mm-hmm. um, and certainly Ukrainianization again pops up in these documents. But that's not my main intent. My main intent is really to to examine you know what the Soviets were doing with this children's population that was largely at their disposal to mold, right? And I don't mean that in, in, in a cynical way, but that, that was the reality. They had a very large children's population, and uh, and it's in spaces such uh, such as this that they're trying to create um, uh, skilled, uh, informed, and future future leaders of. Uh, of Soviet Ukraine and the Soviet Union more broadly, but it has a connection, I think, to imperial past. That is a um, um, uh, preference for dealing with such um, vulnerable populations in an institutional manner, right? Housing them in rather large institutional settings, um, uh, and then um, uh, also recognizing that this is uh, sort of a public security risk, right? Many of these children. Um, lives life on the streets and and um, engaged in petty thievery and, uh, and Soviet authorities like their imperial predecessors were worried about this and they're worried um, generally about um, you know what do foreign visitors think if they come and see um, uh, see such um, ragamuffins on the street right so mm-hmm. the, the instinct is to put them in a controlled setting and to really make something uh, of their lives and to sh- could showcase what they're doing to foreign visitors that then come. Well, sounds very intriguing. Good luck on your current project. Thank you very much. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for this fascinating fascinating discussion of your, of your book. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Welcome the opportunity. Mm-hmm.